0: So we look to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter four, and I'll just read uh, the six verses, uh, verses seven to 13 this morning as our context. And then we will uh, we will look to examine what it means. So first Corinthians chapter four, uh, and it reads uh, verse seven for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. May God bless the reading of his word. The title of this sermon is the Apostles Mission, the Apostles Mission, uh, because I do believe that what Paul is setting before the Corinthians is that very thing, that not only are the apostles servants of Christ and not only should the Christians in Corinth be servants of one another, but he's establishing that the apostles had a mission before them. And he's also recalling to their minds what that mission looked like as the church in corinth itself was even established so he's giving them essentially the plight of the apostles and in contrast to that are the plight of those who are raised up among the church in corinth who have begun the factions and you have all of the consequences of their arrogance of their self-ambition of their jealousy toward one another and so paul is setting a question before them as we begin to look at this text a question to the Corinthians, which was a contrast on two different fronts. First, before God, these individuals among the Corinthians who received worship for themselves were illegitimate. So that's the first thing. They were illegitimate before God. So the question that he seeks to propose before them, he's hoping to establish in the minds of Uh, those who are in Corinth, that these individuals are illegitimate before God. No matter how their fans felt about them or how they felt about themselves, they were illegitimate. And Paul is going to establish why they are illegitimate. But secondly, they were illegitimate not only because of the fact that they received worship for themselves and because they raised themselves up, but they were also illegitimate because you had to compare them to the true apostles. And so the sense in which God actually sent the true apostles and the true apostles' lives marked that being sent by God, you then have these other individuals who show up. And so they were illegitimate because as compared to the true apostles, they were living in a way that avoided the true persecution. And so their lives were not marked by uh, a distinction between themselves and the world system. And I'm not saying that those who love Christ essentially are expressively treated the worst at all times. But I am saying as a standard that you and I could recognize that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, as the word of God says. Each of us are dealing with our affiliation and loyalty to Christ being challenged by those who hate him to varying degrees. But to our historic context, no one could lay claim to that more than the actual apostles. So the apostles were treated not only poorly, but they were hated because they were out at the forefront of establishing the churches that God would have them established. And so they were in uncharted territory. And in that, these illegitimate men arose from the ranks of even some of, uh, within some of the churches, And had begun to proclaim themselves as the truly sent ones of God. But these illegitimate ones, we compare them first to the fact of their worship. We compare them to the worship due God alone and the worship they received by men. This rendered them illegitimate on the first front. And then on the second front, to paint the picture of war for you on the second front, they were illegitimate when compared to the true apostles. Because their lives were lived in such a way to avoid persecution. Believe it or not, raising up factions was a way for them to avoid persecutions by the outside world. They were preoccupied with the praise due to them from individuals within the Corinthian church. Therefore, they had no reason to go outside of that and to be persecuted by those who truly hated Christ. They would rather have spent their time with those who pretended to love Christ versus reaching those who actually hated Christ. And so that's the distinction. And that is a fine distinction. I'll say that again for you. They went out among those. Uh, they, they refused to go out among those who actually hated Christ and settled for hanging around those who pretended to love Christ. But those who pretended to love Christ truly hated them as well. And so these individuals found themselves Enclosed in that world. And Paul is saying their lives are not marked by this true persecution. But not only that, their lives were not marked by the scorn they received because of truly proclaiming and worshiping Christ. So if you don't truly proclaim him or truly worship him, then no one is going to despise you or your testimony. It's easy to love people who proclaim themselves. Everyone loves a good, personal, individual story. Last week, we were blessed to hear from the scripture in 1 John. And the one impression that I got from that particular text was the agreement with which you find in the apostles. Because John is speaking of those individuals who come in and they like to promote themselves in such a way so as to raise themselves up and they never get to the business of proclaiming the testimony of Christ therefore they are never, they are never despised along those lines and the people can never grow along those lines and so these factions you still see the vestiges of it throughout the passage even as we are in chapter 4 to this point but they regarded themselves as superior we know that they weren't worshiping Christ we know they weren't proclaiming him because of how they viewed themselves We do know that they were testifying about themselves. We do know that they were putting themselves forward as not only individuals to be followed, but individuals above the apostles. And if you're saying you're above the apostles, you're truly saying you're above Christ. And so that's the issue that Paul has with them. They were regarding themselves as superior. They wanted to be known by the love others had for them. That's what they wanted to be known for. By the love others had for them. Not the love they had for others. That was Paul. They wanted to be known for the love that others had for them. That was the height of their experience and their connection that they claim they had to the things of God and of Christ. And also the, the deception is that they claim to represent him. They wanted to be, listen to this, they wanted to be unconditionally and unilaterally loved for love's sake. It's nothing wrong with wanting to be loved. It's nothing wrong with uh, wanting people to be loyal to you. But there's everything wrong with wanting that at the expense of Christ, at the expense of Christ, at the expense of his testimony. And that's what these who wanted to be superior, that's what they wanted. They wanted to be unconditionally and unilaterally loved just for the sake of being loved, for being praised. You almost get the sense now that I'm describing a world before you in which you find yourselves, a religious climate in which you find yourselves, where people are certainly loving one another in the way that they have chosen. But none of it has anything to do with Christ, for they are simply puffing each other up and building each other up at the expense of Christ. They're rivals of his. And so Paul dealt with. The ancients in that way, just as you see the fruit of it in the time in which you lived. And I would say it's impossible. The desire that Paul is calling the Christians in Corinth to is not to simply desire to be loved for its own sake. The impossibility comes to us and it must have certainly been heard as a warning from our Lord as he spoke years before this text. When he warned his own disciples, because I do believe that Paul is in every way attached to Christ. I believe he is his one of his sent messengers. I believe he is one who learned from Christ, learned from the disciples and those who were representing Christ, learned in the manner of Saul of Tarsus, who persecuted the Christian faith, knew it well enough to try to squash it and stamp it out and contend against it. But I believe that there is a reminder that he's invoking here and we find it in Luke's uh, Luke's gospel, chapter six, verse 26, where it says, woe unto you. Cursed are you when all people speak well of you for their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same way. Woe unto you when all people, this is Jesus's words, speak well of you for their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same way. And so this warning still stands in Corinth, and it most certainly still stands today, because you now have the undisputed head of the church, the King of kings, Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, saying that this is the case and saying that we must avoid this. And Paul then bringing it to the forefront uh, speaking in a way that is very much connected to the teachings of Christ in this area and saying this is not the way we ought to conduct ourselves and saying the apostles do not conduct themselves this way. In fact, he's also making the distinction and saying the factions you raised up with the names you borrowed for your factions. We don't live that way. We don't live in a manner that would cause us to be the head of your factions, that would cause us to be kings in your mind. So Paul was not interested in a system built on effeminate flattery and heroes raising up fans. He wasn't interested in that. And praise be to God, neither are we. Paul was not interested in that system. He was only concerned that the believers lived for Christ. How simple is that? How, how liberating is that? His only concern, you, you will see it throughout this letter as he begins to correct everything that is left for him to correct as we make our way through this epistle. When it boils down to what do you want from us, Paul the apostle? His answer would be, and is at various points, I want you to live for Christ. I want you to live as though you belong to him. I want you to live as though he's all that the Bible says he is. He was only concerned that the believers live for Christ, and listen to this, and in him finish the course of their ministries, even in the face of overwhelming persecution. Paul didn't simply want them to start. He wanted them to finish. When I speak of ministries, I'm not speaking simply of preaching and preachers. I'm speaking of Christians. All Christians have a ministry. And Paul spoke to the church in Corinth this way. He didn't bypass for some uh, so-called laity clergy split. He didn't bypass the people. He spoke directly to the people and said, I want your lives to look like this in the course of in the course of serving and ministering to others. And he wanted them to do it in the face of promised persecution. Maybe that persecutions intensity is not always going to be the same, but he wanted them to persevere. Nonetheless, no matter what the degree of persecution they face. No matter what the hostility was before them, he wanted them to continue and to persevere. He had already mentioned to the Corinthians that the many things he said before had been figuratively applied to them. He says this in verse six. He says, I took for myself and Apollos an example, but I did this for your sake. I used us for your sake. We're your factions. Obviously, we're on your mind, but I applied these things to us. So that you would not go beyond what is written in the text. Well, what does all that mean? That means Paul and Apollos were pointing them to thus says the Lord. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to go beyond that. I don't want you to reach beyond us. I don't want you to, in your judgments, judge beyond that which is revealed in the text. I don't want you to apply that which is beyond the text. And so he now he wanted to show them what it meant to live a true Christian life outside of their factions. That's what Paul wants. in these six verses that are before us this morning, he wants them truly to live outside of their factions. He wants to liberate them from the factions they have raised up, from the division, from all the consequences of jealousy and rivalry and arrogance, which keeps coming up over and over and over again. He wants them to be free from those things. The issue in this case was not the ones in whose names the factions had been established. The issue in this case was not uh, was not the ones in whose names the factions had been established. In other words, it wasn't Peter's fault. It wasn't Apollos' fault, Paul's nor Christ. Rather, it was those who take who had taken Uh, For themselves, these individuals and make caricatures of them. They had taken truly faithful men, Christ himself being Lord of all, being the God man who is perfectly faithful. And they had raised up factions, but caricatures. These factions were not built on anything that was true or of actual substance. Instead, the true problem, as I've said, it, it, it was with those who created the factions. So that was the problem, and that's where Paul is going. And Paul also addresses them for being arrogant, because it takes a high level of arrogance to raise up factions. It certainly takes a high level of arrogance to raise up factions against Christ personally. And even more so, the arrogance level is further raised when you include his name in your factions. And so I would say that's the height of arrogance, because now you're misapplying who Christ really is and what he had come to do. So they became arrogant toward one another against what the humility Paul commanded them to have in this letter. He wanted to establish that humility among them. They became arrogant toward one another. And you'll see that they become arrogant toward Paul. But verse 7 ties directly to what Paul wrote in his initial greeting as we began this letter. When we look at verse 7, when he speaks about the superiority that they believe they have. He's trying to get them to remember that if you look at that very first part of the greeting... We said it when we first began to look in this epistle. All the the Corinthians possessed was theirs because they were born again. So everything they had, they had because of the new birth. And so all of them had the same. Yet all of them, the only thing that was distinct among them were the gifts that were provided. But you'll see that they're going to fight against that as well. They're going to misapply that as well. But the gifts that they were given were to benefit one another. So the gifts were not to have some clash toward one another or to raise up factions around the gifts or to raise up fraternity based on who possessed the gifts and who did not possess certain gifts. But Paul wanted them to recognize that what they had, they had because of the new birth, if they were indeed born again. And so that was the common ground with which they stood. It was the new birth. They had tasted divine grace. These are kind of the overall general things that we looked at as we introduced this letter. They had all tasted divine grace. They were servants of Christ. They served Him. But also, as we progress through the letter up to this point, you see that they were also expected to serve one another. So it wasn't just serving Christ, it was that they were going to, because they served Christ, because they were born again, because they loved Him, because the Spirit had given them gifts to operate within the life of the church. Because the spirit had brought them together in fellowship, they were to then serve one another. They had received the salvation that each of them enjoyed as a salvation to them all. So it was that they were to enjoy their salvation that the Lord had given them with one another. And so what Paul is dealing with then is the outworking of that salvation. And the outworking of that salvation, as Paul would later write, was the love that they had for one another. It's why 1 Corinthians 13 is written. He begins to explain the love that they must have for one another and practice toward one another. With all this talk, this modern talk of Christian community, Christians in community, Christians gathering together, crowds of so-called professing Christians being around each other. A lot of people in those settings live their lives as individuals. They live their lives individualistically, even their mantras. They speak their mantras in the crowd, but their mantras are only applied to themselves. But Paul did not want to aim for a true Christianity that was that way. He wanted fellowship, fellowship around the teachings of Christ, fellowship around the common interest of the goal that Christ was going to return. And that was a certain reality, but also that he offered himself on the cross for his elect. So think of how foolish then it is as we look at this text for them or any man to act to act as though they are the source of salvation for themselves, because that's what it came down to. They were acting as though they were the source of salvation. That's why Paul says, for who regard you as superior yourselves? Do you regard each other as superior? Because that is certainly a scale that is sliding. Does God regard you as superior? Because if he does, then he would only do so on the basis of Christ and his person and his works. If you are superior in any way, it's because of Christ. And then all who have Christ are then superior and no one can claim to be superior against one another. But if I'm gauging that you're superior based on something that I like about you and you gauging I'm superior, then there is no superiority at all. We're actually both inferior. The gifts of God, namely the gift of salvation, are given as just that. Gifts of his grace. That's how Paul introduces this letter. So then, why act as though you have received it from yourselves? Why act that way? That's what he's saying in verse 7. Why act as though you have received it for yourselves? What do you have that you did not receive? To be superior, you had to create it. So when you see these men strutting around like they are the authors of their own salvation and of their own faith, they are really saying that I have attained the salvation by my works. I've done this on my own. You ought to worship me because I am the mediator between God and man, perhaps God himself. But Paul is saying, what what have you received what what do you have, I'm sorry, that you did not receive? Who is the source of what you have? Because if the source is God, then I don't have to go about worshiping you. I'll worship him. He gave it to you. But you can see today, you can see it. You can see that people have very little regard for God. And very little regard for God working through people because they go right to the business of worshiping the people. What do you have that you did not receive? Or if you did receive it, why why do you boast as if you had not received? Like sometimes I really think people think they can trick Christians. If we're saying someone has benefited the church, they have only benefited the church because of the work of the triune God. So therefore, I need to worship him alone. For what he has accomplished in his church. Praise God for the people. But praise God for the people. But the issue here was how these individuals viewed themselves. It's how they viewed themselves. And I'll tell you sinful arrogance, pride. We see it with Satan himself. It really warps how people view themselves. I mean that's the first deception. It is self-deception. Now, it is its own consequence as it progresses and it gets worse, but not many people realize that self-deception is actually both cause and effect. Self-deception really tampers with how you ought to view yourself. And once you don't view yourself through the eyes of God, you are not going to view other people through the eyes of God. Because in their minds and in the minds of so many today, they had arrived. Paul says that about them. Look at verse 8. You are already filled. You're already. Your palaces are already full. You are kings. You are ruling and reigning over your empires. The issue, again, was how they They were kings in their minds. They were what we like to say large and in charge in their own minds. And their so-called minions, so-called because the minions that they have called forward should not be Minions. But their so-called minions were beneath them in the hierarchy chart. You've seen it. You've seen these men who think they're kings build their hierarchy and organizational charts and they make you peasants. And they treat you like you're peasants. All in the name of ministry. I'm not talking about the world because Paul's not yet talking about the world. He's talking about an infiltration that happened in Corinth. But I'll tell you, not only is Paul addressing this, but he wrote as a man who served and served well with courage and compassion. He had both. If you look at the catalog of things he and the other apostles suffered, that takes courage and compassion. You have to be courageous because the people hate you and they're always trying to tear you and your work apart in Christ. And it's not just theoretically speaking, but they're locking you out of everything that would be advantageous for your tranquility upon this earth. And yet beyond that, you still labor all the more. Why do I say compassion? Because this was happening in the church. This was happening toward people who were supposed to be Paul's greatest, uh, greatest friends. They were supposed to be those who were his brothers and his sisters. But he served them well, nonetheless, he served them well, he persevered, he kept his compassion. But as I've said here in verse eight, he takes full aim. He took aim at those who pretended to be rulers over their own kingdoms. Because listen, whatever personal kingdoms they have, they weren't even ruling over that. So they weren't ruling over the church and they'd established kingdoms for themselves. Those kingdoms were paper kingdoms. Those were imaginary make-believe. And the rulers who ruled over them were imaginary and make-believe. So he, he took aim at those, listen to this, who pretended to be rulers over their own kingdoms and also those who pretended their kingdoms were the church. So he took aim against those who pretended they had individual kingdoms and those who pretended that their kingdoms were the church he took aim at them all you see it today you see it in Roman Catholicism you see it in the annals of modern evangelicalism you see it in all the false religions I could go down the list of the world today but you also see it in the world you see it in the world system you see how the world conducts themselves you see how the world conducts themselves as their own lives or their own personal kingdoms. But all those kingdoms are going to be stamped out by the eventual and 100 percent guaranteed return of Jesus Christ. But in verse eight, Paul says to these folks directly, you are already filled. He's speaking to them directly. He's not mincing words. He's not doing a Q&A session to try to figure out who are the kings that are trying to cause disruptions. He goes directly to who you are. He says, you are already. I'm speaking to you. You're already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings. Listen to this without us. Now you're in trouble. If you became kings without the apostles, if you became kings without Christ, then your kingdom is the kingdom of darkness. So Paul is going right after them. He's telling them to repent in a sense. And indeed, I wish you had become kings. So listen, it's why I say they're not kings. Paul isn't for the sake of argument saying you are kings. We just want to be kings with you. He's saying you're not kings. I wish you actually had achieved what you're saying you achieved. So that we could reign with you. Because if you were truly kings, we'd want to be in your kingdom. And if you were kings who represented Christ, we would certainly want to be with you. But you're Neither. So Paul is essentially saying you're not kings. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. This isn't relative terms. I'll tell you, we're not here to calculate how much money they had, how much influence they had. All it takes for this sin of arrogance and pride and usurping is for them to think in their minds that they were greater than than Christ and greater than the apostles. No matter what the value is. Paul wasn't taking aim at the value. They only had to be rich in their minds. You see what I'm saying? He's going to their thoughts. They only had to regard themselves as superior in their minds. They didn't have to look as though they were superior. They didn't have to have monetary affluence and influence. They only had to think they did. And in thinking so, they were in sin because they used these things to suppose that the apostles were not qualified to represent Christ. Now, that sounds like that demonic prosperity gospel, but so many other things. Modern evangelical they practically apply uh, the, modern, the modern evangelicals practically apply the prosperity gospel in many ways while refuting it at the same time. But my point is, what the word says here is that this superiority is not based on the new birth. That's the issue. It's the issue when individuals are not viewing themselves in light of being born again. Because all that comes to help me define my status in the life of the church, how I function in fellowship, my sanctification. My glorification, the end times, where I'm going to be, who I'm going to worship, who I'm going to worship with. All those things are informed by me having a right view of Christ's finished work in me and you having a right view in Christ's finished work in you. The people to whom Paul refers. I would. I would define them and classify them as hirelings. They're hirelings. Jesus talks about them in John chapter 10. The apostle John speaks about them in his epistle. Paul goes and speaks about them elsewhere. Peter speaks about them in his epistle. Great importance. Jude speaks about them in his epistle. James and his. But they're hirelings. Hirelings, listen to this, from the people who installed them. So, so many every couple months will say, How did all these false teachers get here? And the question is, You hired them. You hired them. The true Christian didn't hire them. You hired them. You installed them. You let them pretend because y'all wouldn't define the lines. And now you're trying to figure out how they exploded. Hirelings. Such as these are installed by the people. It's why Chloe and her people thought it prudent to go to Paul. They thought it wise and say, Paul, you have to deal with this. This is going to ravage the church in Corinth. You have to say something to them. But listen, they're hirelings, not to define some points of doctrine and all these things, because the points of doctrine are absolutely black and white. They're hirelings before we get to the doctrine. And I'm going to tell you how. God hadn't commissioned any of them. God hadn't even sent any of these people to open their mouths. Forget what they say when it comes out. God hadn't sent them to begin with. And so Paul is saying, you shouldn't receive them, Corinthians. Don't even let them start talking. They were all pretenders. They were all pretenders and they were all pretending. But you know where you could see it. You know where you could see it best that they were pretending. There's a few ways that you can, but I want to help you. I want to help you this morning. Even those at the extension of the sound of my voice, where you can see it is in their attitudes toward God's people and their lives. Because first, they viewed themselves as superior to God's people. Once you see that, he doesn't have to say a word. Run from it. Don't apologize for unbelieving arrogance. Rebuke it. Run away from it. You could see it in their attitude towards God's people and in their own lives. You could see it. You could see it. What they valued was the affluence That comes with being helpful to people. The affluence that comes with it. If you're not careful to make sure that that is dispersed to those who truly have need. He says you're already filled. You're you're in your minds. You're reigning as kings. The way you treat people, you're reigning as kings. You view yourselves as superior over them. You're sitting on a judgment seat that was installed for you by men who will not last. You're sitting on a judgment seat in a kingdom that will not last. It's why Paul goes to the judgment of the conscience, but the judgment of the Lord being over the conscience. He says the Christian doesn't have to worry about standing before men in their paper kingdoms and being judged by those paper kingdoms and these paper men. Because they're pretending. Mm -hmm. But you can see also how they conducted themselves as rulers. Mm -hmm. Rulers. Lords over the people. That's how you can see that they were not authentic. Mm -hmm. You could also see how they really viewed Christ. Because listen, if you're establishing factions. Raising up one another. If you're about the business of receiving praise from men. And men alone, if you're regarding yourself as superior over the apostles, I promise I'm describing only what's happening in Corinth, but you can see it in the modern context. If you're if you're if you're saying that the apostles are fools for suffering as they have. And if you're withholding the truth concerning Christ from men's hearts. And doing so in such a way where you're letting people boast in men, you can lay no claim that you have been sent and commissioned by God. Before you speak anything about doctrine, before you start to theorize about doctrinal things with which people would be familiar. I'm saying before we get to that point, when you see these things, Paul is saying these individuals have no place in Corinth. He's not saying, oh, wait, hold on. Let them in. Let them say a couple things and we'll figure it out along the way. No, he's saying they don't belong. They think they're over Christ and the apostles. Let them do that out there. But not in the life of the church. But first, you could see it in their attitude toward God's people in their lives. I feel so badly that so many in professing Christianity, they let people run them down in the name of Christ. They let people treat them so poorly And yet, when they're dealing with people of the world, they fight. But the people who are claiming to love Christ, to represent him in such a way where they should be serving these individuals, they just let them run them all the way down. They let them run them down. And they give no thought to think maybe these people aren't sent by God. Maybe I've come here and made assumptions and thought that God had sent them, but I don't see the evidence. Well, this morning I'm giving the evidence. I'm telling you, how do I know? How do I know that these individuals come from God? They were certainly in contrast and there were certainly contrasts in many ways between them and the apostles. I think a fair question we could ask is, do these individuals look and sound like the apostles of old? We can see that in our text here. The answer is clearly no. But I think that is also a modern litmus test where you could say, do they look? I'm not saying they're apostles because that office is finished. Paul is going to say that in this very text. But do they sound like the apostles? Because we can sound like them and not be them. We have the same message. We don't carry forward the same signs for the sign that we now have is the completed context of Scripture and the testimony of what had been and what will be. But as I said, if you look at what is said carefully, if you look at what is said carefully, they had not truly become kings. It is appointed for every man to live once and then for every man to die. None of us leave here being eternal rulers in the Melchizedekian line related to Christ himself. Only Christ bears that. None of us are walking this earth as prophet, priest, and king. Only Christ. So Paul is very clear that they had not truly become kings. This may shock you. No one in modern evangelicalism is a king. No one. There are no kings. Maybe a whole lot of pretenders. Maybe some are actual servants. But nobody is king. Nobody is a king because there's only one king of kings. So if you look at what is said, they had had not truly become kings. They had only, listen to this, pretended to be kings. Big difference. Pretended to be kings, just like those Pharisees, just like the false prophets of old. They only pretended to be kings, just like the false kings who raised themselves up And just like those whom God perhaps raised up and deposed when he was finished with. them, But they had not truly become kings because then maybe then the apostles would have a place in their kingdoms. If these were truly kings, that's what Paul is saying. This is eschatological. If they were truly kings, the apostles should have been in their kingdoms. You want to know why? Because that's what Jesus said in the Gospels. Jesus said, when my kingdom comes, the apostles will be sitting upon the 12 thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. This is not simply sarcasm, but it is a rebuke. It is saying your your definition of a kingdom is way off. Your definition of who is a king is way off. Your definition of who is a Christian and who is an apostle is way off. You haven't even launched into the basic understanding of these things, and yet you're pretending to preside over a kingdom. It is an argument to show them how devastating their actions were toward the church and toward themselves. If they reigned, quote unquote, apart from the apostles, they would, quote unquote, reign apart from Christ. That should be a fearful thing to hear an apostle actually tell you, hey, you're a king. But I'm not in your kingdom. Well, if I'm not in your kingdom, I represent Christ. Your kingdom has then nothing to do with him. So enjoy that kingdom, but it has no eternal value. In fact, it will only be a judgment. What Paul is describing among these men, it's not a reign. It is a judgment. But Paul's focus is to humble our perception of the apostolic task. That's why I call this the apostles mission. It is to cause us to think how God's men navigate this world before them. But it began with the prophets. You see it in succession and then with Christ himself and then with the apostles. Verse nine, for I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all. As men condemn to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. He argues again from the perspective of the people. You want to reign with Christ? This is truly how the people view you. They might not always say it. They might not always show it. But they're always thinking. This is what they think about you when you are truly in a kingdom that belongs to Christ. When you truly are laboring for Christ this is how they truly feel about you unbelieving people so he argues from their perspective you want to know how he does that because paul knew as saul of tarsus he did it they thought they were wise in christ they thought they were strong they thought they possessed honor for themselves now you see what their false kingdoms are built upon and so what paul says is he simply says that's not true Because really, all they have done is given those things to themselves. It's easy to bestow honor upon yourself. And then to make it appear as though somebody else before you honored you and everybody else just honors you because they don't know any better. It's another thing to have the last the lasting commendation from Christ and where the honor is rendered to you because of him. Therefore, we then honor one another. That's what we talked about in Romans. So those things did not exist on a lasting, eternal foundation of Christ himself. Look again at verse nine. The apostles, Paul writes, stood in contrast before the world at large and before the people. Well, you see that this is an issue of the timeline in which they found themselves. That it was God who exhibited them as apostles last of all. That delineates Time and placement with respect to who they are, but when they arrived. Last of all, he's speaking specifically of the apostles whom God sent. And Paul doesn't say there will be future apostles. He says, this is how our ministries have looked. And this is how we have specifically been treated because of these ministries And this is what we will specifically receive as an honor of those ministries, because I do believe that he's when he says that we might reign with you. He's pointing to the fact that the apostles will actually reign with Christ. They don't have to pretend to reign now. But the apostles stood in contrast. They were not unilaterally commended by the people. The people hated them because they hated Christ first. Christ told them that he told the disciples that. So, what does it say about those who are loved by the world who hates Christ? What does it say about them? What does it say about those who love each other almost for sport, apart from the apostles, in their man made kingdoms with man made rulers? What does that say about them? Here it goes back to our context in chapter 3. Paul is not only writing about what the apostles suffered, but also. What the apostles suffered at the hands of the people as they serve the people. It's not only that they suffered. Paul is writing as one who suffered at the hands of the people in Corinth. Listen, one who lords over the people doesn't suffer at their hands. When they lord it over the people, they won't suffer. They won't have to deal with sometimes the fatigue that people have toward the and the apathy that sometimes develops among people. Because they're always giving them something that they can visibly, visually and temporally see. That would cause them to worship the individuals before them. But this walk with Christ for all of us, it takes faith, pressing on, perseverance, endurance. Rather, one who serves will suffer at the hands of the people he serves. I'm not saying always, and I'm not saying to the sharpest degree. But it is a part and parcel of serving the one true God. But here we can certainly apply this by interpretation to the context of the apostles. It's evident. So you think of those among the so-called charismatics and others who label themselves apostles So they're not even timestamped correctly and their lives don't even look like the apostles they're claiming they're continuing from because they're living like kings and queens at the expense of the people. God has hasn't exhibited them as the apostles. He's exhibited them as fools. They're reigning now because they're fools. They have forfeited the future reign. And if they are suffering, it is only a glimpse of what will come. But they would think it foolish. Many of them, they would think it foolish to suffer anything for the cause of Christ. Truly. I'm not talking about the cause of politics. I'm Talking about the actual cause of Christ. For Christ himself. Then think of those who would preach this very text. Listen, because we're all about discernment. Think of those who would preach this very text for profit. They would think it foolish to actually live as though they are lock and step, hand in hand with the apostles. They would think it foolish. They don't think it's foolish to speak about these things. They think it's foolish to live this way. And I'm not saying the apostles pursued this intentionally. As some kind of asceticism to beat their bodies down. No, they were simply walking with Christ. And come what may, Paul speaks of contentment. He speaks of abounding in much at times, but he speaks of having very little at times. And he speaks of it in the context of this is what it looked like to follow Christ. I took up my cross, I followed him and I suffered. The apostles, Paul specifically wrote about the time you see it in the verses that follow wrote about the time in which the apostles were ill treated in society because the world system was opposed to them. And the one whom they represented, Christ. I would say this, that just because it appears, even in the time in which we find ourselves, to be a time of relative peace doesn't mean you don't have a personal and open antagonism towards you because of your representation of Christ. The world system is as much against the Christian as it was then, even more. We're told in Timothy things were colder, not better. So just because Christians in this particular geographical area are not being fed the lions doesn't mean that they're not still treated as though they're the scum of the earth. It's not, oh, wait until we all go to jail. Hypothetical men holding hypothetical kingdoms going to hypothetical prisons. They have nothing to offer. What I'm saying is the true Christian truly suffers. Truly suffers. Even suffering perhaps to the point of thinking what may have been. And I'm not saying being tempted to go after the world system. But at every turn obstacles presenting. From those who oppose Christ and the world system at large. And the devil who takes opportunity. But it was very much a blatant thing in the time in which we. Read about Paul. The world system was opposed to them and opposed to Christ. So listen, they labored. They labored at the expense of themselves for Christ. They didn't put you to labor. They didn't put the Christians to labor, the true apostles. They labored. Paul says it. He doesn't say we're fools. No, there's a much better lot. He says we're fools for Christ's sake. Big difference. We're fools for Christ's sake because Christ is going to vindicate me. But you are prudent in Christ. You think you're wise in Christ, yet we're fools. Jesus said wisdom is justified of our children. You can see wisdom based on the results it produces. That's what Jesus was saying. We are weak. I mean, we're going through all these things But you are strong. You are distinguished. By the way, you distinguish yourselves. Yet we are without honor. The world doesn't honor us. The world doesn't name anything after you and I. The world doesn't, you know, if we pass on and go on to glory with Christ, we'll probably be a glancing notice. We'll sadden the people with whom we have found great intimacy and relationship and fellowship. But the world will move on. They don't care. That's not to depress you. That's because you're waiting for something eternal where you will be recognized by the one who claimed you as his own. You are distinguished. These men are distinguishing themselves. Distinguished scholar. Distinguished preacher. And yet we are without honor. There's no parade when you and I leave here. We're without honor. The only honor we have is what Christ has established. But guess what? That's more than enough. That's more than enough. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. The apostles themselves living without basic needs. You may not be going through this this hour, or you may be going through this this hour. But when you do, it's not simply for its own sake. He says we're poorly clothed. The, the the true Christians have not found a monopoly on the world system, therefore does not get to benefit from all the world system gives. That's not an excuse, because in the same in the same uh, place in verse 12, he says, we work with our own hands. Paul doesn't say, well, you know what, because of that, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to weep and sit here and I'm not going to try to provide for myself and those whom I love. No, what Paul says is all of this in the course of laboring for christ not at the expense of laboring for christ not i need to find another way because it's just too hard it's i will keep persevering in him until that day in which i see his visible kingdom come with me a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men we are fools for Christ's sake, he says to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. Paul's not complaining. He's giving you the facts. He's not complaining. He's telling the people you're treating yourselves and each other like kings. Busy worshiping each other. Busy not doing anything that has anything to do with Christ at all. While we labor for Christ and experience all these things. Make no mistake, being with Christ takes its toll temporally. It does. It does. But it is well worth it when you consider eternity. We're roughly treated. People hate them. We're homeless. So while y'all are building factions about me, all these things are actually happening to me, is what Paul is saying. They did not possess the finest garments because they did not possess the flattering and and smooth speech to gain sponsorship from the world system. Whatever they had, they had because they worked for it. They labored for it. Their course took them toward persecution and malignment. I'm not going after people who have because they worked. I'm going after people who labor at the expense of the Christians calling it work. Because that's who Paul was after. It says they were roughly treated and even homeless without proper accommodations at times since their message offended those who were tied to self-preservation and earthly comforts. No matter where you are. You would be much further if you renounce Christ. But praise be to God that you will not praise be to God that you haven't thus far. That is what Paul is essentially saying. I refuse to regard myself as superior because so many would take me in. I'd be one of the wealthiest men in the world. But Paul was not even monitoring his influence. He simply wanted to labor for Christ. I want his influence to be what matters. And so Paul couldn't unlock what the world may have for those who who know how to play the world system's game. We toil working with our own hands. This isn't done to himself. Paul isn't doing this to himself. It says they were roughly treated, homeless. But next what Paul wrote was the sure response. Listen to this. They labored with their hands. They labored with their hands. That's a blessing. I work with my hands. I'm not trying to get over on people. I'm not trying to speak about this text and talk about people's superiority complexes over others and then turn around and do the same thing toward them. We work with our hands. Well, where is he getting that from? They, they toiled, he says. It's almost like he inserts that in here. Paul, what does that have to do with anything? You know what it has to do with? The creation mandate. The Noahic Covenant. He's saying we can, we truly belong to the fulfillment of all, of all those covenants. It's also the requirements of the new covenants. You read them in the parables of Christ to be stewards over both our time and those entrusted to our care. They actually worked. They worked. A novel concept to the one who makes a living scheming money out of the hands of God's people. To actually work with your hands in the face of people who don't want you working with them. To labor faithfully in a system that is not for you. There was a response from God to the people. There was a response from God to the people. He says, when we are reviled, we bless. They hate us, we bless them. When we are persecuted, we endure. Whatever our context. At each turn, the, the apostles responded in humility and blessing. Humility and blessing. When hated, they blessed. When run down in and pursued in persecution, they were not only patient, but persevering. They endured. They kept on. They kept running the race. When they were slandered, that is, They were the object of false accusation and false testimony. They tried to see to it in the best of their abilities that they would be reconciled to their enemies if it were possible. The world then saw them no better for this. But this treatment continued and went on and on. He says we have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Let me help you understand something. This was not from God's perspective. God had only exhibited them. But God had a plan for them beyond the world around them. This was not he's not speaking from God's perspective on how God views them. He's speaking on how the world views them. For they were to reign with Christ presiding in his kingdom, just as you and I will on the 12 thrones for them, judging the 12 tribes, just as Jesus promised. Men would not place them there, but Christ himself would place them there. Yet men viewed them the wrong the wrong way. The Corinthians were not better for trying to worship the apostles. That's not the solution. Okay, you're treated this way. Let's build a faction and worship you. That's not the solution. It would lead to delusion, frustration and slander. And guess what? That's what happens as we progress through the letter. Those who maintain divisions and divisiveness and schism within the church, they became disillusioned with Paul. They became frustrated with him. They began to slander him. They began to accept others who did the same toward him. Paul did not want this for the Corinthians. He wanted them to reign with Christ in a real kingdom, not to reign with men in a false kingdom. Let's pray.